All right, so I really like to talk about um, history, and I like to talk about, uh, I hope, the things of God. I want to talk about three basic themes. I want to talk about the idea of kings, kingdoms, and the gospel, the good news. So the idea of kings, we are a democratic people. As Americans, we don't like kings. Um, kings are, by their very nature, undemocratic. We don't elect them. Um, they are usually kings by birth or by blood. And we are suspicious of these types of entities. Um, we used to be subjects until we overthrew our king. And I think as a result, there is within this strain of American thinking a mistrust of authority and a suspicion of power. When you think back to 1776, we made a declaration of independence. We created another set of rules for us to play by and to govern ourselves by. We essentially chose to govern ourselves. And that tradition has continued to the present age. So we don't like kings. We don't like the claims that they make on us, and we don't like what they say to us. We are afraid of despots. We hate tyrants. Even our motto of the Commonwealth of Virginia is thus always to tyrants with this reclining figure with someone's foot on their neck. That's what we want to see happen to tyrants. Overthrow them. And I think in part it's because we don't know good kings. We have to look in Scripture to see if there are some good kings. And we see David, we see Saul, and we see in them some good examples, good models, good, good actions. But then we also see the fallenness of them as well. David committing adultery, committing murder. Solomon, how many wives and concubines? He leaves God. He loses faith. He breaks faith. I think in, in our own story, we see some bad kings. We see Herod, and you're going to hear more about Herod. Herod's son, Herod Antipas, he be, he's the Herod in Jesus' story later on. And then Jesus gets to deal with another king, Pilate, later on, who's representative of Rome's king. So we're surrounded by kings in this story. Now, when Christ enters this world, he enters it quietly, humbly, but he's still a king. There is a different model of kingship. And I really like stories, and I like the Arthurian legends. And King Arthur has been held up by some to be a model king. Stephen Lawhead wrote a wonderful series of books about King Arthur. And I want to describe how King Arthur is described by Lawhead in this, in this story. And this is from... Uh, a gentleman by the name of Bradley Berzer, and he's a, a, a contributor to a website called The Imaginative Conservative, which may seem like its own oxymoron, but anyway, <laughs> want to read on, and, and hopefully you'll get some benefit from it. Lawhead's vision of medieval kingship, at least as presented by, by Italius and Merlin and Arthur, is almost identical to the theological constitutional monarchy of St. Thomas Aquinas. And he goes on to talk about what this is like. And I'm quoting now from uh, Lion. The imperial sword of Britain will be won by the one king among you 
who will bend his back to lift other men. It will be gained by the king who puts off pride and arrogance, who puts off vanity and puffed up ambition, and takes to himself the humility of the lowest stable hand. It will be earned by the man who is master of, his, of himself and servant of all. This is Merlin speaking to the, the petty kings of Britain. Um, he will be a man such as other men will die for. He will love justice, uphold righteousness, do mercy. To the haughty he will be bold, but tender to the meek and downcast. He will be a king such as never been in this world's realm. The least man in his camp shall be a lord, and his chieftains shall stand head and shoulders above the rulers of this world in kindness, no less than in valor, in compassion, no less than in prowess, for he will carry the true light of God in his heart. When the kings of Britain heard this, they expressed their skepticism, and Merlin in holy anger thrust the sword Excalibur into the stone, waiting for the true king to come and get it. This king that Merlin envisioned was to bring about what Lawhead refers to as the kingdom of summer. And this kingdom of summer was to be characterized by a land of shining goodness where each man protects his brother's dignity as readily as his own, where war and want have ceased and all tribes live under the same law of love and honor. It is a land bright with truth where a man's word is his pledge and falsehood is banished. Where children sleep safe in their mother's arms and never know fear or pain. It is a land where kings extend their hands in justice rather than reach for the sword. Where mercy, kindness, and compassion flow like deep water. And where men revere virtue, revere truth, revere beauty above comfort, pleasure, or selfish gain. A land where peace reigns in the hearts of men, where faith blazes like a beacon from every hill and love like a fire from every hearth, where the true God is worshipped and his ways acclaimed by all. Who doesn't want a king that would bring about that kingdom? Christ <coughs> came into this world humbly, but he came with a grand promise and a magnificent pedigree. He is the man-god-king. He was recognized by the Magi who came and worshipped before him. That's what you do before a king. You worship him. You obey him. He is God-made flesh. And this proclamation, this reality demands a response. Now, we've talked a little bit about kingship. I'm going to move into what's a kingdom. So a king rules a kingdom, right? And if we don't have a kingdom, then there's nothing to rule. A kingdom ultimately is, at least we understand this in human terms, it is the, the extent of my effective will. So when I was unmarried, I thought my kingdom was pretty broad. When I got married, I realized that they were very definite boundaries. <laughs> right? And then when I had children, my kingdom shrunk even more, right? My wife will tell you, I basically I have a closet. It's mine. 
We understand this as, as adults, and we understand it as children. When you're in the back seat, there's the line of death. There's the line that none shall cross. <laughs> and that, that boundary is fought over more importantly than any nation-state boundary. <laughs> he crossed the line! We understand that. Kingdoms are about boundaries. Kingdoms are about effective power. Human kingdoms tend to be about exclusion, about keeping out, or sometimes keeping in. In the old USSR, they had a problem letting people leave who wanted to leave because they saw them as individuals that they had invested communal resources in. And so they were loath to let them leave. In the United States, right now, there's debate raging about boundaries and about how we should protect those boundaries. This makes sense. We understand. This is kingdom of the earth talk. We want our rights. And those rights are defined by boundaries. There is, however, another kingdom. And this is a kingdom of heaven. This is the kingdom that Christ spoke about. And when he, talk of, and when he spoke about this kingdom... It was about God and man abiding together. So that Isaiah passage that was read, that's not just by happenstance. That's prophecy that when you recall Christ in Nazareth, when the scroll is opened, he reads from Isaiah and says, today this scripture is fulfilled. He declares he is bringing about the kingdom of God. What does this kingdom look like? Well, you know, there's this story, there's this big grand theme within Scripture where Jesus, where God demonstrates. First, there's the garden. That is, God is walking with man in the garden. Then problems erupt. So we adapt. He creates and says, hey, build me a tabernacle. I'll reside with you through the tabernacle. You'll receive the glory from me from the tabernacle. Well, that evolves into the temple. He creates this physical place, this one location where he is represented, and on very rare occasions, on very few days, people get to be in front of God Almighty. That fails, and he gives us his son, Jesus Christ, God incarnate, who walks among us. He is the temple himself, emanating his glory throughout the kingdom, throughout the world. Man intervenes again. We don't like God here. So he's dead. He's killed. Then we're left with the Holy Spirit who indwells within you the temple of God. There's this modification of how he works within us and through us to maintain this community. Now we have the Holy Spirit. And each Sunday, we come and we eat God. Why do we do that? It's a reminder, a physical reminder, that God is within us now. We are filled with His Holy Spirit, and we're special and set apart as a result of it. So what's this good news? We know what good news is, right? 
So I've talked a little bit about a king. I've talked about a kingdom. I want to talk about the good news. We know what good, good news is instinctively. I got the promotion. The test results came back negative. She said yes. That's all good news, right? There's another kind of good news that Jesus is talking about. So if we reduce the gospel to the sinner's prayer, we don't even talk about the kingdom of God. My challenge to you, and this is where I'm going to push you, and please feel free to push back, but not right now. Um, <laughs> if all we define the gospel as is I'm a sinner in need of forgiveness, Jesus died that I might have life, and I just have to say the words, and then we're good. If that's the gospel, we're missing the vast majority of what Christ spoke about when he was on the, on, on the earth. Christ did talk about his death, but when he was spreading the kingdom news, it wasn't that you're a sinner, you need to repent. That was there, absolutely, but that wasn't the primary focus of his message. His message was God has come down. He has descended to earth. He is here walking with you. Walk with him. Engage with him, and you can help me Make the kingdom real now. Bring it apart. apart. Bring it now. Make it incarnate. The gospel is not just about getting into heaven. It is about getting heaven into you and then getting heaven into the world by extension through you. This is the a deep facet of the gospel, and if we ignore it, we forget half of the message. So what I want to, to think in advance, is this a gospel of works? Is this a justification through works? Do you drive a car without gas? Do you drive a car without electricity? If you've got the perfect car, but you don't have the means to use it, it's really not a useful car, is it? The gasoline or the electricity doesn't justify the car. It makes it useful. So if all you do is believe if you have right credentials, credens, the Latin root, credentials, if you think rightly only, but do not do rightly, then you are not worthy of your thoughts. It is about an extension and an expression of who you are. Because I love my wife, I want to show her things that demonstrate my love towards her. Otherwise, my love is just words. Show me your faith without deeds. This is James. We can't, in our reformer's zeal, cast away the need to be who we are and demonstrate it through our actions. So what I'm saying is simply this. You will act differently because of what you think because of what you believe. And if you do not act differently 
because of what you think and because of what you believe, then I do not think you believe what you think you believe. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. This does not make you a Christian. It does not grant you salvation. That's done by Christ, by his blood. But if you are not saved, if you do not believe, then you will not do. And the thing of it is, the irony is, there are those who are moralists and humanists who shame us with their good works. They don't do it because of Christ. They just do it because they're, they feel a burden to them. I'm not saying that that's wrong. But I'm saying they're probably not saved. <laughs> because ultimately the fundamental core difference is why we're doing it. Said differently, and I've used this analogy before, if I go to law school, if I study the law, if I, if I read all of the cases, if I interview people, and I pass the bar, and I got a bar a license as well as a, a, a degree from a great law school, but I don't practice law, I'm not a lawyer. All those things don't make me a lawyer. I've got to do it to be it. So that's the challenge. So how do we do it? Well, we look to Christ's prayer that he taught his disciples. He said, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He asked God to basically open the gates to let God's kingdom be here as it is in heaven. That kingdom of goodness, of rightness, of restoration, of renewal. He's asking God to come into this world. So, I love these words from John Ortberg where he describes the gospel and the kingdom. This is Jesus' gospel, and I'm quoting from Ortberg. God is present here and now. God is acting. You can revise your plans for living around this cosmic opportunity to daily experience God's favor and power. Some people teach that the only reason Jesus came to earth was to die on the cross. But death on the cross was only one part of his mission. His overall mission was to be the kingdom bringer. His one gospel was the gospel of the availability of the kingdom. His one purpose was to model the reality of that kingdom in his life, death, and resurrection. His one command was to pursue the kingdom. His one plan was for his people to extend the kingdom. He invites you, as a gracious gift, to become an agent of the kingdom, to experience God's reign in your own life, body, and will, and then to become a conduit of God's power, joy, and love to a bruised and bleeding humanity all around you. That's the gospel. It's not the gospel plus. It's living and breathing as Christ lived and breathed, who when he walked down the streets, couldn't stop, help but stop, to heal those who were broken. He didn't just keep saying, saying, hey, I hope you're thinking the right thing. I hope you're believing the right thing because then you'll be saved. He had mercy on them. 
It's not a social gospel either. There's nothing social about righting wrongs. It's what we're supposed to do. When I see injustice, it doesn't delight me. I shouldn't revel in it and say, that's great, the rich and powerful win again. That's not our call. Our call is to stand up to that. To say there's another way, there's a deeper way, there's a truer way, and it's the, it's the way of Christ. Now, many of the ways that the kingdom of man are propounded, protected, and perpetuated, that sounds like a black pastor now. Preacher, <laughs> brother. I can do that. I can do those three words again. Um, it's, it's through humility. It's through love. It's through submission. It's through quietness, and suffering. It's not through the sword. It's not through power. It's not through having the, the, the correct political party in power. It's through through love. So we have a choice. We have a choice to either work with Jesus to build his kingdom or to not and to build our own. Um, and, and the kingdoms that we build are small and petty. They're passing. Um, they don't last. Uh, one of the difficulties we have as Americans is we're, we're, we're taught and not wrongly, but it's just our emphasis is on the individual and individual rights. Everything is about me versus the world or you or the government. It's through the individual. This is where I think the Africans have something on us. They tend to think much more communally and tribally. I'm not saying I'm a communist, far from it. Um, but I'm saying when they think about decisions, it's not just about my best interest. There's this at least an understanding of a, a communal best interest. And as the church, we are a community. We are a family of sorts. We're bound by blood. So we need to think, I think, about altering the way we think about the rest of the world, not just me as an individual, so much as truly what is the good for this community or for this place. It's a different way of thinking. I think we're called to that. If our own selves are our only points of reference, we've already started to enter the gates of hell. So what does the kingdom look like? I want to turn back to Ortberg because he gives a great example of what the kingdom looks like. What does it mean to build this kingdom, this good news? Every time you're in conflict with someone, when you want to hurt them, gossip about them, avoid them, but instead you go to them and seek reconciliation and forgiveness, the kingdom is breaking into this world. Every time you have a chunk of money and you decide to give sacrificially to somebody who's hungry or homeless or poor, the kingdom is breaking into this world. Every time somebody who has an addiction wants to partner with God so badly that they're willing to stop hiding, acknowledge the truth, and get help from a loving community, the kingdom is breaking into this world. 
Every time a workaholic parent decides to stop idolizing their job and rearranges their life to begin to love and care for the little children entrusted to them, the kingdom is breaking into this world. This good news happens through Jesus. So the end goal of this kingdom coming into this world, I would tell you, I think, is ultimately it's renewal. It's renewal and restoration. It's renewal of relationships. It's renewal of ourselves. It's renewal of the earth. It's this pan renewal. <laughs> it's important to note that the, the way that Christ does this is, again, not through the exercise of coercion, but it's through active suffering love. And we can rejoice in our own suffering because we have someone who has suffered even more, who knows us, who knows what we've done, knows what we've been through. To choose ourselves is to exclude ourselves from relationship from God. We become less human. We turn into ourselves. And if hell is the absence of God, we drive God away when we seek to build our own kingdoms. C.S. Lewis talked about the gates of hell having the locks on the inside, not on the outside. That hell itself was its own voluntary separation from God. The folks who were in hell had no place for God in their lives. And as a result, they forged their own chains, just like Jacob Marley, one deed at a time. So, to return back to Herod in our story, we can become like Herod, and we can act in fear, and in his desire to maintain his own kingdom, he slaughtered the babes of Bethlehem, so that Rachel's cry was heard. He slaughtered an entire generation of babies so that he, his weak control, his weak hold on power could last just a little bit longer. That's how much he feared the King Christ. Thinking about boundaries and kingdoms, A different way of thinking about the cross is to think of it as God's staking his claim on the world. You know, back in the 1860s, there was the homesteads. You could have to stake your claim. Think of God's, Christ's ascension on the cross as his staking his claim for the earth and all that's in it. And he bought it. He bought it with his blood. He owns this earth. He owns you. He has a claim on you. You are his subject, whether you recognize it or not. They said about Arthur that he was a bit of a rogue. He's no fit king. Uther's bastard, Merlin's pawn. He's low-born and a fool. 
He's wanton, petty, and cruel, a glutton and a drunkard. He lacks all civilized graces. In short, he's a sullen, ignorant brute. All these things and more men say of Arthur. Let them. When all the words are spoken and the arguments fall, exhausted into silence, this single fact remains. We would follow Arthur to the very gates of hell and beyond if he asked it. And that is the solitary truth. <coughs> Show me another who can claim such loyalty. My king, the king that I want to swear allegiance to and bend the knee to, is King Jesus, who conquered death, and he not only went to the gates of hell, he broke the gates of hell. <coughs> he sundered the gates of hell. And with my words and my deeds, I want to help to bring his kingdom into fruition now. One small act of extravagant grace at a time.